the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 14, Night Crossing. Waiting for twilight to morph into darkness grated on Martin's nerves. He needed to get those antibiotics as quickly as possible, and yet... He had been sitting around doing nothing for hours. Darkness came frustratingly slowly. I think now's as good a time as any, said Davy at last. Yeah, let's get your boat in the water. Dr. Rowlett clicked on his flashlight. No, said Martin. He clamped his eyes shut immediately. White light'll ruin our eyes' night vision. Turn that thing off. He heard the doctor's light click off. We need to see what we're doing protested Dr. Rowlett. Well, we need to use red light, said Martin, and even that sparingly. We'll need whatever natural night vision our eyes have. Red light doesn't reflect like white light. Far less visible to distant observers, too. He pulled out his flashlight with the red lens. He clicked the tail cap button. Nothing happened. A fussy switch, he muttered. He clicked it several times until the red light finally came on. Oh, that's better. The boat was light enough for the two men to lift, but it was an awkward burden to carry down the steep embankment. Discarded granite blocks, long grasses, and logs of driftwood made an obstacle course. They got their boat into the water, loaded in their backpacks and Martin's ammo box. He brought along 200 rounds of 5.56 to trade. He also brought half of his secret stash of silver, 20 one-ounce coins. Ammo had been the more popular go-to barter currency, but he thought the CMC doctors might balk at trading in destructive goods. Silver was rumored to be popular with gang members. They might find that more attractive. The roar of the river was so loud that Martin and the doctor could have carried on a conversation in shouts and still not be overheard. The water swept them downstream suddenly when the pram emerged from the sheltered bay between the buildings. Martin sat in the front and paddled vigorously to keep the bow pointed directly downstream. The rapids splashed and hissed to their right. They had to get clear of the rapids before they could cross. A thin crescent moon above an overcast sky provided a faint backlight. The skyline of mill buildings and the bridge stood out like black cut paper shapes against a deep gray sky. The roar of the rapids was coming from behind them. The Notre Dame Bridge loomed up against the sky ahead of them. Time to cross over, Martin said in a hoarse whisper over his shoulder. He could no longer see the sentry's fire atop the bridge. The two men paddled furiously to cross the fast current. They passed under the bridge near the second pier, just as they planned. The black outlines of trees rose up to their right. The irregular shape of the old bridge pier rose up too looking like a ruin from a Scottish castle. That was their waymark to begin paddling toward shore. A low and leafy branch smacked Martin in the face. He held his hands out to grab the next one. When he caught the next branch, the little boat swung around, bow into the current. Martin and Dr. Rowlett paddled as quickly and as silently as they could against the current, drifting backward toward the sandy shore. The bottom of the boat scraped along the sand and gravel. Martin pulled at the unseen sand with his paddle until the little boat was beached. 
Martin climbed out and held the boat while Dr. Rowlett made his way forward and out. The two of them pulled the pram farther up onto the sand. This was a lot harder than I thought it would be, whispered Dr. Rowlett. Agreed, but we made it this far okay. Martin had to unzip his jacket. The workout had him overheated, despite the cold night air. Let's get our stuff and get over there. He tried to click on his red light, but the switch ignored him again. You can't keep clicking that thing when we're over here, said Dr. Rowlett. Someone will hear it. Just feel around for your stuff. Well, hold on. We'll need this red light in the buildings. He smacked the flashlight as if bullying persuaded electronics. The red light finally came on. Sometimes bullying works on electronics. With a carefully controlled beam, Martin could see his ammo can and backpack. I'll just leave my light on, but keep it in my pocket, he said. No clicking that way. Batteries will be good for a couple hours. Let's go. They walked carefully over the driftwood and debris, keeping their right hands sliding along the worn granite blocks of the old retaining wall. When they felt grass, they knew that they had reached the narrow slope between the old wall and the new. As they reached the top, Martin slowed down so he could peek over the crest. The tall Notre Dame Bridge was three hundred yards to their north. A small burn-barrel fire flickered at the King's End. Another fire marked the militia's sentry post at the east end of the bridge. To their south, similar sentry fires twinkled on the Granite Street Bridge. Martin knew the sentry's night vision would be ruined from looking into a bright fire. He and the doctor needed to stay aware of any roaming patrols nearby amid the building complex. Crouching low, the two men ran across the expanse of I-293, the Jersey barriers between northbound and southbound lanes offered visual cover. They saw no signs of movement. It was surprising how much their unaided eyes could make out in the dim, overcast light. At the chain-link fence, Dr. Rowlett held the mesh so it would not clank or ring while Martin pulled up a section between the two posts. They had a suitable gap. Martin had to make sure his carbine didn't snag on the fencing or that his ammo box didn't scrape on the pavement. Dr. Rowlett led the way along the back of a brick mill building. The silhouette of the billboard sticking out at right angles to the brick wall provided orientation. They scurried along the base of the wall, crouching low to avoid casting outlines through any of the lower story windows. Dr. Rowlett muttered some mnemonic stuff to himself, a non-rhyming poem to help him remember which set of windows to look for. It should be one of these three windows, Dr. Rowlett whispered. They tried pushing on each of the three. The first two didn't budge. The third one slid up with a soft scraping hiss. The window frame was low enough that they could hoist themselves up to the wide wooden sill and roll inside. The room they had clambered into had been a renovated apartment before the outage. Now it was unoccupied and cluttered with stacks of unneeded furniture, metal frames, and many boxes. From the dim light of the windows, they could find the door without knocking over anything. Need to get to the third floor, Dr. Rowlett whispered close to Martin's ear. Martin patted on the doctor's shoulder as an affirmative signal. The doctor led the way. 
the two men crept down the dark hallway. The dim rectangles of door windows behind them provided a sense of bearings. The stairwells were pitch black. The old iron steps had been carpeted as part of the residential upgrades, making them mercifully quiet to walk on. The air inside the stairwells was cold, stale, and carried a whiff of rust and old urine. The two paused periodically to listen at each landing for any footsteps. They heard nothing. Top floor, whispered Martin. The air was a little warmer. It smelled musty, but less of urine. He slowly pulled the stairwell door open a crack. He saw no one. A hallway ran along the face of the building. The row of windows provided just enough light to make out each of the doors on the opposite wall that led to each apartment. Well, which room? I don't know. You don't know? You were leading us up here, and you don't know? Third floor is all I know. Uh, hold on, said the doctor. I can find out. He rustled in his clothing for a moment and then tapped gently on the metal door frame with something metallic. Tick, tick a tick a tick. What are you doing? Martin demanded and grabbed his arm. Someone will hear that. Why, well, I'm counting on it. I mean, someone bad. You were so worried someone would hear my flashlight button, but you're doing this? Dr. Rowlett pulled his arm free. That was outside. We're close now. This is a private signal. She'll hear it and understand. Tick, tick a tick a tick. Martin heard a door latch and the hinges softly almost squeaking. The outline of a woman's head appeared at the second door. She looked up and down the hallway. John, the woman's voice whispered. Marcia, Dr. Rowlett whispered back. Get in here quick, said the woman. A hand waved in the hallway. Let's go. Dr. Rowlett whispered to Martin. He quickly tiptoed to the open door. Martin followed. It clicked shut behind them. Total darkness. The woman hurried down the narrow hallway with scuffing steps on a fake hardwood floor. Martin tried to walk with a rolling motion to avoid making footfalls. They came to a small living room with three windows that faced the river. David, what are you doing here? The woman's voice was almost scolding. Against the gray squares of the window, Martin could see them locate each other and squeeze in a long embrace. Okay, Martin mused. They are obviously more than acquaintances. And why did she call out John and then call him David? How did you get here? she asked. Oh, I came with this guy named Martin. He has a boat. A boat? Really? The woman's voice sounded unusually happy at that random detail. Okay, I get it, thought Martin. She is what he wanted to smuggle out of here. <laughs> Bigger than a shopping bag. I should think so. It was hard for Martin to feel much outrage over Dr. Rowlett's duplicity. Martin had been using the doctor about as much as the doctor was using him. We're each trying to get what we want. He does, David said. We beached it right across the highway. Martin, now's a good time for your red light. Amanda, this is Martin. Martin, Amanda. He's here to get some antibiotics. Amanda had medium-length, wavy, dark hair, a round face, and eyes that sparkled a little in the red light. 
She had some of that tired look that most people had after the long winter, but none of the drawn and sunken look that many people had from lack of food. Martin tried to make his story concise. That's right. My wife is really sick with MRSA, running a fever. Our friend, Connie, who's a nurse, said we needed some special antibiotics. Dr. Rowlett said that a Dr. Bellevue here at CMC would have some. He pulled out his notepaper. Pepericillin, Tazobactam, and or Menoparum. So, I'm guessing Dr. Rowlett brought me here because you can take me to this Dr. Bellevue. I'm Dr. Bellevue, said Amanda. Dr. Amanda Bellevue, internal medicine. Wait, you're Dr. Bellevue? asked Martin. His first impression was that she was too young. He shook off his stereotypes. Okay, whatever, said Martin. Do you have any of these or not? Yes, I have Peptaz. The brand is Zosin. It has both Pepricillin and Tazobactam in it. We call it Peptaz. Oh, that's wonderful, Martin felt almost giddy at the news. She had two of the three he needed. He was actually doing something constructive to help Margaret. My wife needs these really badly, he held up his ammo box. I brought 100 rounds of 556 to trade for your Peptaz. Martin held his tongue. He had 200 rounds in the box, but waited for the counteroffer before saying anything further. Wait right here, said Amanda. I'll be gone a little while, but I'm coming right back. Martin could feel her leave the apartment more than he saw her go. A swirl of cool air, scuffing steps, and a soft snick. Huh, she didn't haggle. Does that mean she accepted my first offer? Martin turned to face Dr. Rowlett. Why didn't you tell me Amanda is the something you plan to smuggle out of here? Oh, I thought it would sound too risky, that you wouldn't agree to it. And that's why you were upset that my boat was small, isn't it? Look, I know it was dishonest of me, but surely you understand. You're doing all this to save your wife. I'm doing this to save my fiancé. We kind of fell in love talking out there on the bridge all those times. Well, I can get that, but save her from what? Sounded like you two had a pretty comfortable deal going on with the gang leaving you both alone to do your doctor things. Why take this huge risk? It isn't all that comfortable, David said gravely. You're right that things aren't so bad right now, but that could change soon. Well, why? From what you and Davy were saying, things sounded kind of stable, said Martin. Oh, yeah, stable. El Vaquero, the leader of the King's gang, has been morphing into something more like a benevolent dictator than a gang lord. Well, that's not what I heard, said Martin. He recalled the story Carlos told of their escape. Well, oh, sure, at first, things were brutal. With law enforcement hamstrung and overrun by the power outage, the gangs assumed control of the streets. Not much officers could do. It was like fighting shadows. The police could chase the shadows, but the shadows never left. The Azules held the south side. Kings held the west. The hunters and royal order held neighborhoods in the north. We were spared the worst of it since we were in the middle. The mayor still had control of the center. Eventually, the kings pushed out the others. When it was mostly just one gang in control, the violence quieted down. When the Walsh brothers started their citizen militia, the mayor's territory expanded. The militia took back downtown and the mill district right up to the river. The hunters and royal order 
had to give up the north. I heard that there's still some across the river, but they haven't given any trouble lately. We think the winter killed off a lot of them. Baccaro consolidated his control over the west side, across the river. A lot of street fighting stopped. Vaquero had been the leader of the king's years before all this. He's in his late thirties now, got a wife and a couple of kids, they say. Personally, I think family life changed his outlook on things. He began to act more like a mayor of his own town. He set up relief programs to help the poor find food and fuel. His men patrolled the streets. Random crime dropped. He even acted as a judge settling disagreements and pronouncing punishments on people who broke his laws. And the Walsh brothers just let all this go on? Martin asked. Oh, not a lot they could do. Not yet, anyhow. Vicaro has the manpower and weapons. He set up roadblocks and blocked the bridges just before winter to stop the militia from taking any more of his territory. The militia had their hands full with the rest of Manchester. I'm sure they'll retake the west side eventually, but not any time soon. A lot of the people over here actually liked Vicaro. So I'm guessing this Vicaro kept the hospital open, but the doctors are kind of like slave professional labor. He wouldn't have a hospital without doctors, said Martin. Good guess, said David. I wanted to get Amanda out, but she was torn. Vicaro let her treat the people of the West Side, not just his gang members. She would sneak them medicines from her secret stash. She was doing real humanitarian work, making a difference. So, like I said, repeated Martin, why would she leave now? Acero, said David. Acero Negro, he calls himself, the Black Steel. He's a young and hot-headed rival within the Kings. He thinks Vaquero has gotten old and soft. Acero says people should take what they want and not play house. Vaquero talked of having people work the land west of town this summer, grow some crops, raise some animals. He wants his people to have food next winter. Well, that sounds like a wise leader, but not very gang-like, said Martin. That's precisely Acero's point. Amanda says people murmur that Vaquero has gone soft. Acero has followers who agree with him. They would rather take things by force, not till the soil. They wear only the black, never the gold. A lot of people on the west side like his tough talk. They want a strong leader. Amanda thinks it's only a matter of weeks before Acero feels his side is strong enough to make a move to take over leadership. If he succeeds, the west side will be a terrible place to be. The door to the apartment opened with a faint swish. Martin could feel a subtle wave of air against his face. Amanda moved down the pitch-black hallway. He took his red light out of his pocket in hopes of seeing a box of medicine. He could see Amanda standing near the end of the kitchen counter. In her hand, she held a box the size of a small loaf of bread. Martin's elation quickly evaporated when two other people came into view standing behind Amanda. Well, who are they? Martin demanded. He didn't like surprises. Nurses that I work with said Amanda. I have your peptas, a box of fifty vials. That should be enough to help your wife, assuming you can find some meropenum someplace else. We didn't have any of that. Well, why are they here? Martin asked. He noticed they were both young women with frightened eyes. They wore coats and backpacks. 
You can have your peptes only if you take us all with you, said Amanda. What? Martin threw up his hands. The beam of red light flashed around the room. I don't have time for this. I'm trying to get this medicine to my wife, not stage the great escape. Look, I'd like to help you all, but no buts. That's the price, Amanda said firmly. Take us with you, and you can have what your wife needs. If not, the box stays here. She set the box beside her, on the counter, and placed her arm in front of it. Martin kicked the sofa in frustration. Did you know about this all along? Martin demanded of David. I I had no idea. Uh, I only... It's my idea, said Amanda. David was going to try something like this someday. I had no idea how or when, but I couldn't leave Amber and Chandra behind. I told them to be ready to go on a minute's notice. Did you tell them about a syrup, David? Oh, kind of, David said weakly. That tyrant is gaining followers every week, said Amanda. It's only a matter of time before he makes his move to take control of the kings. He's ruthless enough, he just might win. The West Side will become a living hell if he wins. He rants about how the Hispanics are the only righteous race and how he's going to drive out the whites and the blacks. Uh, you, you never said anything about this, protested David. Well, I didn't want to worry you, said Amanda. Cicero preaches that only a racially pure land can have peace. People are buying that. He's boasted that he would turn CMC into a sex resort for his loyalists, keep a few white and black women in chains to make their races pay. Amber, who was white, and Chandra, who was black, looked at each other with even more frightened eyes. Martin flailed his arms in frustration. I've only got a small boat. It was fine for the two of us, maybe three, but, but five? That river is ice cold. If we sink, we could all get hypothermia and die before we reach shore. We'll just have to be careful then, won't we? Amanda's tone left no room for negotiation. We won't stay here. Martin deflated with a long sigh. Oh, fine. He would have to make it work, somehow. Amanda put the box of antibiotic vials in Martin's hands. I've included some IV parts, too. There are instructions in the box. Now, we'd better get going. There's a guy who walks the grounds. He'll be here in a half an hour or so. There was space in Martin's ammo box for the little case of vials. The IV tubes and patches fit on the sides. After checking that there was no movement at the parking lot outside of the hallway windows, the five made their way down the stairs. Martin's red light helped them navigate the windowless stairwell. Martin dropped down first from the storm window. He kept his back against a derelict car while he scanned the parking lot. No one. The others dropped down, one at a time. David hurried across the pavement to the spot where they had lifted the chain-link fence. He held the fence up while Amanda belly-crawled under. Martin tapped Amber to run across next. She squoze under. Martin tapped Chandra's shoulder. She ran across but her jacket hood snagged on the fencing. The chain link made a jingling sound as she struggled to get free. A bright white light snapped on, illuminating David and Chandra in a blinding circle. Hey! shouted a young man's voice. What are you doing? The young man ran over with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other to shine his light directly into David's face. In doing so, his back was turned to Martin. Oh, we're just... 
David began with his hands raised. Martin ran up behind the young man and grabbed him in a chokehold. He clamped his other hand over the young man's mouth, too, to prevent him from crying out for help. The pistol and flashlight fell to the ground. The young man twisted and bucked. Martin struggled to stay on his feet, but held his forearm tight against the young man's throat. The young man reached his hands behind his head, trying to get at Martin's eyes or ears. He clawed at Martin's cheeks and temples. The fury of the young man's struggles faded. His arms went limp. Martin looked around frantically. Were there more? Did someone hear his voice? See his light? He held the young man a little longer before letting him drop to the pavement. David crawled over and felt his way up to the young man's neck. Uh, he's dead, David whispered. Well, I didn't want to kill him. Martin's heart still raced from the struggle, but he felt guilty. He had killed without thinking. I just wanted to keep him quiet. Well, he's quiet, all right, said David. He looked up and down the narrow parking lot. Oh, blast! I can't see after looking at his flashlight. Give me some of your red light. Martin pulled his red light from his pocket. The young man lay on his back. He wore a Pittsburgh Pirates jacket. David unzipped the jacket and tore the T-shirt up the middle. What are you doing? We need to get out of here, Martin implored. There, there could be others. In a minute. We'll be long gone before anyone finds him. But maybe we can throw him off so things don't get worse for the rest of the staff. David looked all around the young man's body, patting the ground. David felt around with his fingers. Uh, shine your red light over here. In the faint red beam, he found a triangular shard of glass several inches long. David pulled his hand inside his jacket cuff so he could hold the glass carefully. With the sharp point, he cut an upside-down V into the skin of the dead man's chest. The wound barely oozed any blood. What? Why are you? Martin was dumbfounded. There, that's a Saros gang sign. Hopefully Vaquero's men will think some of Acero's men killed this kid and kidnapped Amanda, Amber, and Chandra. Not that they escaped. David held the fence up for Martin to roll under. He first pocketed the young man's pistol and then pulled in his ammo box after him. Martin glanced back at the lifeless shape sprawled on the pavement. He held no ill will. His only thought was for the safety of his now larger group and his mission to save Margaret. The five of them slid down the grassy slope on their butts. Martin led the way, feeling along the granite wall with his left hand as he walked. He stopped at the large driftwood branch that he had propped against the blocks as a marker. Martin turned right and counted out five paces. He bent over and swung his arms back and forth in the darkness, advancing slowly until his fingers brushed the bow of the pram. Found it, he whispered back. He knelt and held his red light low to the sand between his knees. Walk to the right, one at a time. Careful. One by one, the three women and David crossed the sand to the boat. Martin held the bow at the water's edge while David stepped back to the stern. The three women stepped in and sat down. Martin lifted and pushed, but the pram wouldn't budge. Too heavy. He tried to raise the bow again. His boots sank into the wet sand. On the third push and lift, the pram slid backward. Martin nearly fell into the river, but caught himself. He tumbled into the boat, making more noise than he liked. He put his backpack between his knees and his carbine along the side. 
he would need his arms entirely unencumbered for the strenuous paddling to get back across the river. Okay, paddle back, Martin said. Good, now now turn right. The little pram swung around. He and David dug their paddles into the river in deep, strong strokes. We're sitting really low on the water. Only got a few inches of freeboard, Martin whispered over his shoulder. Stay low. Uh, nobody move around. When the pram got close to the center of the river, Martin could feel the current pushing them along. Davy's white light stood to the right of the yellow one, but they were moving close together faster than Martin liked. Faster, he called. He tried to steer left and paddled as vigorously as he could, thankful that the river was louder than his splashes. The two lights are in line, Martin said, but we're not far enough across. Faster, we need to turn left more. He could hear David's rapid strokes splashing as fast as his own. We're, we're too far to the right, Martin called out. Turn left, faster. No matter how furiously they paddled, the little pram drifted right. We're going to miss the channel, Martin said. We're too low in the water. The current is pushing us harder. Keep paddling. Maybe we can snag one of those trees on the channel wall. He knew that that was a long shot. Rocks and whitewater awaited them outside the channel wall if they didn't grab a branch. The rear light disappeared behind the mill building. They had missed the channel. The pram began to sway and buck, a full broadside to the current. They flowed up and over a liquid mound and slid into a watery valley. In the blackness, there was no way to see what lay ahead of them. The roar of foam told them it was terrible news. Hold on tight. We're... was all Martin could say. The right side of the pram struck a submerged rock. The pram tipped. Chandra, seated on the right side, let out a little scream as she tipped over. Martin felt her pant leg brush against his face as she fell overboard. He grabbed her ankle, the only thing he could get a hold of in the split second. He thought he would help her back to being seated upright. Instead, she went overboard and pulled him in, too. He felt her sink like a stone. She still had her backpack on. Chandra kicked and writhed, but continued to sink. Martin refused to let go of her ankle. He knew she needed her arms and legs free to try to swim. So he hand over hand exchanged grips until he had a grip on the shoulder of her jacket. The current drug the two of them over some large rocks on the bottom. Martin felt his left foot drag along a second large rock. He kicked off to push toward the surface. All was blackness. He could only rely on a sense of buoyancy to guide him for which way was up. He pulled hard with his free arm and scissor kicked. His face broke the surface. He gasped for air quickly. He pulled Chandra up, even though in doing so he pushed himself back under. He could feel her splashing to tread water. He gasped another quick breath. The two of them slammed sideways against a large rock that stood out in the water. Martin's free hand found a handhold, a rounded crack. He pulled Chandra up. Grab hold! He could feel her flailing for something to grip. Got something! she shouted. Pull yourself higher, he said between sputters. The cold waves stung his face. He could feel her pulling higher. She found another handhold. He let go of her shoulder and patted around, feeling for another crack or a knob that he could hold. He tried to push up with his feet for a longer reach, but his foot slipped on a mossy rock. He lost his grip 
and fell back into the foam. The eddy spun him around. He hit his forehead on a rock, then spun in the other direction. He flailed and sputtered to keep his head above water and gulp another breath. The cold cut into him like a thousand knives. He could feel all his muscles tense up. Need to swim. Which way? It's all black. Swim across the current, was all he could think of. He forced his stiff arms to do a short breaststroke. He had no way to gauge if he was making progress or merely flailing. Oh, this is better, Martin thought. I'm in some warmer water now. Maybe it's the discharge from a power plant or something. So tired. I'll just float a while uh, to rest a minute. Then I'll start swimming again. He rolled onto his back and bobbed along. He couldn't feel his arms or legs. So tired. His eyes gazed up at the featureless dark gray sky. Yeah, another cliffhanger ending. Yeah, what can I say? For my monthly members, I'm putting together a little video tour of the area that chapters 13 and 14 take place. This so that they can see what things actually look like. The mill buildings, the bridges, the rocks, they're all real places. And two, there's one week left for you listeners to give me some feedback on the ads question. I won't tamper with the jury with any of the early results. The basic question is whether you, the listeners, find the ads obtrusive and feel they should stop, or whether you're okay with the ads. This podcast is a shared experience, so I value your input. The link for the survey will be in the show notes, as well as on my Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon pages. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts about keeping the ads or not going forward. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing from you.